Welcome everyone to the CEO.Digital show. My name is Craig McCartney, and I'll be your host that's going to guide you through an open exploration of technologies and trends straight from the C-suite. You'll hear insights will help you better deliver results for your company and its stakeholders. We'll be interviewing a range of C-suite executives, those that are creating technology to those that are implementing it to support their businesses. Find out more and stay up to date at ceo.digital. And don't forget to like and subscribe to the show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the next installment of the ceo.digital show. This episode is going to focus around privacy and technology. And I have a wonderful guest lined up for you today. And that is Therishni Arumagam from Aeon. Therishni works as the Global Privacy Technology and Operations Director there. Therishni is also an international speaker, speaking at loads of events, writing articles, conducting workshops and running seminars on issues relating to data privacy. Currently, Trishni lives in London, but is international, hailing from Malaysia, and is also a qualified lawyer. So, lots to learn and lots to unpack. So, let's dive straight into the show. Welcome to the CEO Digital Show, Trishni. It's really, really good to have you here. Thank you for having me. So, you've had a varied career, starting out in a high school in Malaysia, teaching the debate team or coaching the debate team, then getting into the legal, well, becoming a lawyer, and then now into sort of a privacy sector within Aeon as a global privacy technology and operations director there. Can you fill in some of the blanks on that journey? How does one become a, a global privacy technology director at a company I mean, as big as Aon? Yeah, it's, that's a really good question. First of all, I think just jobs and privacy have become a lot more varied in the last, say, two or three years. I think in the past, people were like, oh, if you have to be a DPO or a CPO, you're a privacy lawyer, you're everything, you've got to do everything. And the budgets were quite small for privacy teams. What's happened, I think, in the last few years, given GDPR, given just like privacy laws across the world, organizations are going, hey, there's a lot to be done and there is a varied skill set that's needed. And so this role was sort of a bespoke one, really, given what I had been doing at my company for the last eight years and the support that I provided the team and how we're just sort of creating really specific expertise within the team without, you know, creating silos as well, because that's something we don't want to create, making sure that people have all the opportunity to explore what's needed in privacy. Because I think privacy laws has grown so much because people understand it's not just a privacy statement anymore, a privacy notice and clicking I accept, you know, it's more than that. It's, it goes to the heart of how we conduct ourselves digitally as a individual and as an entity, as a company. And so that's why I think people understand their obligations and understand their rights under privacy laws as well. And did your background as a lawyer, did that give you a good grounding for some of the the passion that you have for this particular subject? Definitely. It started out in the legal side of things. And I still sort of consider myself a lawyer, even in this role. You never can almost stop being a lawyer once you start being one and definitely gave me an understanding of why it's important. I think the laws and the fines and the penalties are one thing, but the why itself gives you a really good grounding to do your job properly, to serve the right purposes when you're doing what you're doing, 
but also just uh, having a law background as well. The study of law involves a lot of dissecting of information and making sure that you're putting that back together in a way that makes sense. And I think that's given me a really good foundation, even though I don't have a tech background whatsoever. It's really helped me in that journey. And being a lawyer and someone who's coached a debate team, I'm guessing you win most of the arguments in your house. <laughs> I try not to have them in the first place. I think that's, that's the key <laughs> thing about being a lawyer is let's not go to court. Let's try to settle this amicably. <laughs> but I think it's more actually the art of persuasion as opposed to the art of winning an argument. I think it's how do you convince people of your ideas and, you know, what you think is right. And I think that's probably the best skill I have in my, my entire life is the art of persuasion. And it doesn't really matter what you're arguing if you are persuasive enough. <laughs> this is how I look at it. There's always two sides of the coin. Yeah, exactly. In your role at Aon, what are you currently working on? As, do you have a particular focus within the business? Yeah, so I, I think my focus right now is supporting the development of technology or the continued use of technology within our organization and making sure it's compliant, but also in the field of data and analytics. So I've always been involved with the firm's push for our centers of excellence when it comes to data and analytics. That was a super eye-opening journey for someone who's just only have a legal background or had a legal background to understand how data works, the importance of data, even for an organization that's primarily business to business in terms of, of our, our target market. And so that's kind of what I do. I mean, the nitty gritty includes internal tech. So now, privacy enhance, enhancing technologies or privacy technologies is a big thing now. So in order for that to even work correctly in a large organization, you do need some dedicated support to understand how it all works and make sure that it's managed correctly. Because if it's not managed correctly, you could potentially have a really big fine from a regulator just because you've not managed your privacy compliance correctly with the technology that you've purchased <laughs> to make sure that you are compliant. Yeah, I was going to ask you what sort of technology supports you in your role. Would you, you just answer that question? I mean, does your team work closely with the CISO of an organization or is what you look into um, feed into the decisions they make? So we work very closely and I think we're going towards sort of a complete data organization. So the privacy organization, the security organization, as well as the data office. That's something that we're, you know, kind of thinking that this is the way and the right approach to look at data holistically in the organization. So trust, ethics, security, as well as utilization of the data should all go hand in hand. So it's almost like three people joining hands to make sure that the organization has a consistent approach when it comes to the use of data and you know, sensitive and personal data as well. I met you at an event where I got the idea to speak to you and I found the conversation very interesting just about the volume of data that we're having to deal with. And obviously, you know, this is a conversation you hear, but, you know, I heard words that I hadn't heard before in terms of, you know, the different bytes that you get and the size of the data. How is that going to impact your role? How are you going to manage this mega volume of data, which is just going to grow exponentially? Exactly. I think that's where the data minimization principle under privacy law comes into place. So under privacy laws, you're not supposed to collect more information than what's actually necessary for the purpose. And you can only retain it for as long as you have a purpose to retain it for. 
you know, you can't keep data forever. I think that was something that we we're always like, oh, we should keep all of it forever. I'm sure one day we'll have some purpose for it. But under privacy laws, like if you still have personal information on it, you have to delete that data or have a plan to delete it and have a retention period. And then I don't know if you remember back in the day, any forms you had online, if you signed up, they'll ask you a whole bunch of information that that's not relevant. You know, you signed up for like a grocery card or a point system, and they'll ask you a lot of questions that are not relevant to you having a grocery or points card. And under privacy law, that's now all slowed down because you have to justify why each and every piece of data that you're collecting is necessary for what you're trying to do. And so I think that's where, as a privacy professional, our role really is to help minimize data and the collection of data. I mean, from a short-sighted perspective, that's obviously from a security, like we want to make sure it's hard, the more data you have, the, the harder it is to keep secure. From like a long-term perspective, I see it as also making sure that we don't have more and more data centers that are not environmentally friendly. And I think that was some of the conversations we had when we met was, you know, the collection of data creates the standing up of data centers. And these data centers are not environmentally friendly. People think of data as, oh, it's in the cloud somewhere. It's fine. But it's not. Like a cloud is just a way to have physical storage in a very, very different way. That's really how I think like the challenge is to find that balance of, yes, we do need data, but how much data do we need and how long should we keep that data? And how do we get rid of data as well? It's not just a paper trail that we need to think about getting rid. It's also digital information. Exactly. It's very interesting. I'm sure Aon has a, a strategy for sustainability, but yeah, the, the data the data science thing is very is quite interesting around that. I mean, some of the things that we've spoken about, I like to try and get a little bit under the skin of people I'm speaking to. And I know what stresses me out when I'm working and what keeps me awake. Do you get kept awake by issues at work? Do you sleep well? Or or what does keep you awake right now around data privacy? Yeah, it's it's funny. I, I don't try to keep awake in general about work. <laughs> work is work and then you're done. But I think that the themes that tend to creep into my personal life and what I think of as a person is data ethics and how organizations are just starting to grasp privacy and do want to utilize data, but they have the correct mechanism to make ethical decisions around data. It's still such a new field, data ethics. It's tangible yet non-tangible. And we're seeing sort of more and more inquiries into technology like AI and how you know the decision-making behind AI as well and how that might impact individuals. We've seen recently the ICO saying, you know, we've got to be really careful about how you're utilizing AI and the explainability behind AI because it might impact individual lives if you don't actually do it correctly. And that's something that's concerning for me. And then I think like everyone else who's living today, the impact of what we do to the environment is incredibly important to me. I am kept awake at night of the fact that I live in London. I'm from Malaysia. I have family in Malaysia. I have friends in Singapore, which is where I lived. And my family is also in Australia, uh, my husband's family. And we have to fly all the time to get there. And they've got to come here. And that's that's the cost of my carbon footprint. And it does make me think a lot about what can I do as an individual, but also in my professional role in order to minimize, you know, my carbon footprint, but also, you know, my organization's carbon footprint as well. 
Yeah, I mean, those are valid reasons to stay, keep you up at night. <laughs> I definitely. try not to. I try to get good sleep. I'm very cranky without my eight hours of sleep. My husband will tell you that. And what is, I mean, you've probably touched on it already, but what is, in your opinion, not getting enough attention right now in the world of data privacy? Is it this data ethics that you just mentioned? And is there anything else that you know our listeners w- would benefit from? I definitely think data ethics is something that is very much something that we are still figuring out in the data privacy world. It's not getting as much attention. And that's through no one's fault because there's so much in the world of data privacy in terms of compliance and regulatory action that, you know, you just get overwhelmed. And this includes, you know, just the restrictions around cross-border transfers of data. In the last few years, that's become a huge issue. You know, transferring data from the EU is a big issue. They've got data localization in China and Vietnam, and all of the countries are coming up with, you know, new privacy laws that we need to comply. So it's a fair distraction, right? Like, because there's so much of basic things that we need to get right first, which is like, as a multinational organization, and just in the world that we live in, having borders to our data is hard, and it's hard to comply with. And so I get it. I get why we are distracted by these bigger ticket issues. And then there's always the world of cybersecurity, right? Keeping data secure, keeping ahead of the malicious players and their evolving technology in terms of ransomware, in terms of, you know, malicious script and code and that sort of thing and social engineering. There is so much going on that data ethics does sometimes take a backseat. But we're getting more attention, I think, because of the big ESG push in different organizations and just, you know, ESG is just a whole thing. I find it interesting that next week I'm going to speak at my second ESG conference with a privacy lens on, but we are not seeing, I don't think at least privacy conferences having that much ESG content. So it's still ESG is just like people are giving that separate route, like ESG is its own thing when actually ESG is everything, you know, it's how do you do the right thing? by the planet, by society, and it should be everywhere in everything that you do as an organization. Again, I love speaking to people like you because I, I always then am able to look at the world through a slightly different lens. You're connecting privacy to ESG. I'd be very interested to hear you speak. So let us know when it is and we can also add it to the page to promote it for you. So, you know, we've had GDPR, we've got the data privacy laws, obviously strict in parts of Europe like Germany and Austria and Switzerland. You got the the new Californian data law. And then, of course, Canada has, again, quite a strict uh, law around data privacy and consent. Managing all of those must be quite tricky because I'm I'm guessing you guys have customers in, in all those locations. Is there uh, any tips or, or tricks that, that you could share on how to do yeah. that? <laughs> I don't know if it's tips, but so, yes, it is incredibly tricky. We do have presence in pretty much all the countries that you talk about and the countries you did talk about as well, right? Like, because that list is going to be never ending. I started my career in APAC, which has the most varied amount of privacy laws. It's not a political block the way the EU is, so at least in the EU, technically all of the EU member states should have the same privacy law, which is GDPR. But in Asia, and in Asia Pacific specifically, every single country has something else. And then you have China being part of that, and that they have a completely different um, outlook towards privacy and cybersecurity as well. So to go back to your question, do I have any tips? 
a lot of people tend to think it's actually, oh, let's take the highest standard and apply it across the board. To a certain extent, yes. But my question back to people who say that is, what is the highest standard? Because people tend to think that's GDPR. And it's actually potentially not, depending on how you look at it. Because under GDPR, you are allowed to collect personal data without consent, i.e. legitimate interest, because you have a legitimate purpose to have it. In some countries in Asia, you can only do it with consent, even if you have a legitimate interest. So that's a higher bar because you have to be able to prove that you've got the consent of someone to do it. So how do you do that, right? It's basically sort of what we've done is looking at what is the similarities and the principles that might be applicable across the board, having our company's own viewpoint of what is the similarities, and then making sure that we adhere to a program that's fairly similar across the board, but understanding the significant changes and significant impact of the different privacy laws across the world. So like I said, there might be consent that's needed actually in a different part of the world. So you can't just rely on not having a consent block and I acknowledge, for example. Is there anything, and like, you know, in some jurisdictions that might not even be possible, right? And making sure that we understand where it's not possible and not trying to apply the same standard, the same program without any changes, without any, not making it bespoke for anyone else. I think that's the mistake is where companies have a headquarters in California, a legal team in California that says everything's the same. This is our program. You have to use the same contract. I've had so many contract negotiations where they've used the wrong template when I was working in Asia Pacific. It was a, either a mention of American laws or GDPR or pre-GDPR as well. And that just doesn't show any confidence in your own privacy program. You must understand what is going on in every single jurisdiction and ultimately have eyes and ears on the ground. So we have a network of privacy champions that serve as our eyes and ears on the ground or are embedded as part of the business. So you might have a certain role in your business, but you also wear another hat as a privacy champion and making sure that everyone's aware of what's happening on the ground because we're a huge company. There is no way that a central privacy team would know everything and we don't pretend that we know everything. And how big is your team, actually, roughly? Oof, I haven't done a headcount recently. I think we have something like in the central global privacy team, which I, obviously I'm not the boss. I don't manage this whole team. 20 plus people, I think. Probably a lot more, actually. I just haven't done a headcount recently. But my team is relatively small. So the privacy operations and technology team is four people, including myself. So I've got a privacy lawyer. I've got a privacy analyst, our senior analyst, actually. And I also have recently hired someone with a technology background. So he's never really done privacy. He's only ever done technology and technology implementation. And this was a challenging role to try to hire for, right? Are you happy leaving your technology role to come and join privacy? And this is a growing field. It's privacy engineering, which is a huge field that people, like everyone's trying to get talent into this particular area. It's challenging because you have to want this. You have to want to like have your privacy hat on and your technology hat on and engineer for privacy by design within the organization. And that's been really a really interesting development the last few years in privacy law and privacy practice. Yeah, you can definitely see that becoming more popular and more of a thing as the data grows and the needs for privacy continue to get you know, more and more important. Is it part of your culture? 
this sort of data privacy focus within Aon or obviously is, is your Absolutely. team trying to sort of build that culture into everyone's sort of mindset? No, it's, I think the good work that we've done in the last, say, four years has really reflected in the privacy culture at Aon now. We've got CEO board level attention on privacy. The board is extremely interested in what we do as an organization when it comes to privacy and cybersecurity. In fact, it's shown in the rate in which privacy impact assessments are filed at our organization. So we have such a huge backlog because everyone wants to just make sure that they've got privacy's blessing before they do anything. It's created like a huge backlog. There's a lot of people submitting just in case they need an approval, which is such a great improvement from five years back when we had to go, oh, have you heard of this thing? Did anyone submit a privacy impact assessment? <laughs> have you heard of a privacy impact yeah, assessment? Yeah. It's done such a huge change in the last five years, especially I think post GDPR. We've tried to create that privacy culture. And I think the key of that as well is having these privacy champions being clued in into what's happening, feeling part of the privacy organization because privacy shouldn't just be this central team. It should be everyone. And we just provide guidance and support where needed in order for everyone to meet their privacy goals and obligations. Yeah. Okay, great. I don't know about you, but I want my data, I want it to be secure and I want to have all the correct privacy measures in place. But I also just don't want to click accept cookies on every single website I ever visit constantly. It feels like even if I visit the same website, I'm still just accepting the same cookies. I'm like, just hit me with the cookie. I've said yes. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> I want those notifications to go away, but no, I also want to make yeah. sure they are doing what they need to do. Yeah. And it's funny. So cookies actually fall under my remit and how we comply with it. So yeah, no, I'm not a fan either. <laughs> 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 no, but um, honestly, regulators are, are trying to to in Europe, I think, starting to come to a consensus about how that banner should look like should actually include a reject all option straight up front. All right. Like, you know, oh, that's, yeah. that gives you a meaningful choice, you know, and it's just like, how do you collect that? That information it has to give someone a meaningful choice as opposed to it's just easy to click accept all. And some websites don't even give you like another option to check what cookies there are. It's just like accept all. And that's a cookie wall. And that's not okay. Gosh. So let's talk about someone who wants to get into this field of privacy. You know, you obviously need to have a passion for it. You need to care about those individuals that you are trying to protect as well. But what advice would you give to someone who wants to become, say, a chief data officer or, or someone, a chief privacy officer? I'm guessing that title is going to be created soon as well. What advice would you say or what tip? You definitely don't need a law degree now. I think back in the day, yes, like most privacy jobs were given to people who have a law background. In saying that, you still need to have an understanding of how the law works in the privacy space, who the regulators are, and just how that is so different from you know going to court half the time and having a legal case. Like individuals can just make a complaint to an organization and they have a short period of time, usually a month to respond to a complaint to about how their personal data has been processed. So urgency is a big deal in, in the privacy space. My advice would be one, that understanding that, and then two is understanding technology and data and how that works. I think data analytics is something that 
the future generation cannot run from in terms of understanding how any of that works, you know, the difference of, you know, what machine learning is versus AI versus how to connect the technologies all work, right? That's something that people should sort of really understand how those things work. That would be my advice. And then just, you know, making sure that you're connected to the privacy sphere in general, like listening to podcasts and attending conferences and getting certified sometimes helps. I personally wouldn't just hire someone just because they've got a privacy designation on their title. Even if you don't have one, if you show me that you are capable, that you have an interest and you're willing to grow and learn, I'm happy to hire someone over someone who's just got a title that you know uh, has a privacy certification. Of course. Aptitude and attitude are such important traits nowadays. So in terms of that, just going back to the technology again, because you know, this is a tech-focused show, but when you're choosing technology, you know, what goes through your head? Do you have an idea of what you need and then maybe go out and try and look for that solution, go to events, you know, do your own research, or do people perhaps contact you and say, this is what I've got? And you go, oh, actually, that could work quite well. <laughs> What's the general... so interesting you're asking me that because... I get bombarded on LinkedIn so much by vendors, especially since the role change. Just because I've got technology in my title now, people think I work in the tech sphere. And so a lot of a lot of the vendors are not relevant to me. I do not have a say half the time. I do appreciate, though, learning about technology that has thought about the security and the privacy and are very proud about that and technology that has thought about the ethical issues. So if you're going to be selling me AI or my organization AI, I want to hear about how you thought about bias in the data set, whether you've accounted for that. If you've got you know people that can talk to someone like me about that and allay my fears. And I did have actually a really good conversation with a HR recruitment AI technology company and spoke to the CEO. And one of the first things she said to me was, she mentioned the Amazon situation where they used an initial AI technology to go through CVs and it had some fairly disastrous racial and ethnic consequences from the, the model itself that they ran. And so the fact that she knew about that and she knew that's something I would probably know about and I'd be worried about happening in my organization. I think that's what I look for is that getting ahead of issues like that if you're going to be selling technology because Privacy and security teams in every single organization now are really connected to the procurement team and to the technology team. We're the gatekeepers, essentially. And so if we don't think that you have enough of an understanding of these really pertinent issues, we might be able to convince the decision makers to go with another option that is more suitable and has actually thought about these um, pertinent issues. And are they doing enough to address the bias in AI from what you've seen? I know the conversation started now, but... That company definitely did, the one that I did speak to. I don't think a lot of organizations have thought about bias in the data set in the way that it needs to. I think a lot of the times when they think about bias in the data set or the modeling software that they have is, is it accurate? Is it providing accurate results? rather than are the results going to create a discriminatory situation for the individuals that might be impacted by this technology? You know, whether people either from an ethnic background, so for example, if you're hiring people, 
and you're using a, a, a technology software AI to go through CVs and it picks up, it thinks that if you've gone to Harvard University, that's a good thing versus going to say a Chinese university in China that might be a lot more, it's very well respected because the bias in, in the data set is there, right? Or a sport like women's volleyball versus volleyball, right? That's another situation where people might be impacted by bias in the data set. The other thing is taking into account people with disabilities as well, whether that's you know hearing or visual disabilities, does the data set you know, when you're using AI, for example, even on a chatbot, like, does that really take into account disabilities that people might have interacting with that sort of technology? So, yeah, I, I don't think there's enough focus on that. I think there's a lot of focus on data accuracy and data hygiene, which is obviously very important. If you're going to be using AI to interact with people and things that affect their lives, I think there is a lot of work to be done to make sure that there is no bias or potential bias with the results of the AI, as well as being able to explain how the AI works is also really important as well. Yeah, I do follow that um, quite closely. I mean, we could probably have a whole episode just talking about that <laughs> and the impact of that. But we have come to the end of this episode. And what I'd li like to do is obviously find out a bit more about you and not just with your sort of data privacy experience hats on. But let's talk about some things a bit more close to home. So do you have a guilty technology pleasure? Oh, my God. Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> I am, I'm constantly on Instagram. Yeah. Those algorithms are working their magic. Yes, definitely. <laughs> I'm also married to a photographer and a video producer. So, And I, I picked up photography in the pandemic film photography so so that i think ingrained me even more in instagram i think that's that background personally yeah i've got a portfolio then of, of stuff you've done or, or um, still I, early days <laughs> well i don't know if i have a portfolio but i have a public instagram called tarish photography if anyone ever wants to check out my photography it's still very very early days very novice but i've entered my first photography competition so we'll see how that goes well, good luck i mean it's just it's yeah just try you know submit you never know yeah man do it you gotta do it and then are you reading any good books or watching any good series on netflix or prime or yeah both i think and it's kind of connected actually i am a massive lord of the rings fan huge massive nerd and really fell in love again with the series since you know i was a teenager when i first fell in love lord of the rings and so now the rings of power has come out on amazon prime that's been amazing and so i've ordered a book i read a long time ago which is the silmarillion which is one of the middle earth series but i'm also on the side reading quentin tarantino's book which just came out so my husband is a massive fan we bought tickets to go see him speak in london next year and part of the tickets was a copy of the book so about to start reading that one. What is that like? What's a biography or something? I think it's, yeah, like I think he's fought on cinema and, and a bit of like his journey as well. So I've just only like kind of read a little bit at the start of it. But yeah, I watch a lot of TV. I watch some good things and some horrible things. So I think, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think some of the best writing on TV right now is Succession. I think that's, it's brilliant. Oh, excellent. I yeah. love Succession. It's I can't wait for the next season, but I also watch trash TV like Love is Blind. You heard it first. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So it's easy you. to watch that, though. You don't have to think I about know. anything. You know, you exactly. can just shut down. Exactly. It's great. Yeah, but I, I feel very guilty for watching Love is Blind. <laughs> 
No, don't give yourself too hard a time. And how does your family describe what you do versus how your friends, what do they think you do? <laughs> That's such a great question. I don't think my family, like my mom and dad, or even my brothers understand what I do. I send them articles or, or videos of me when I have public appearances and they'll send it on to their friends. I know that happens on like WhatsApp. But I think they just tell their friends, my daughter is a lawyer in London, which is not inaccurate. I think they might sometimes remember to add privacy. So because, you know, privacy law is not a huge thing in Malaysia. So it's, it's hard for them to explain to other people as well what I do. My brothers once jokingly said, I write privacy notices for a living. <laughs> yeah, that's the, my brother's that's exciting that's, job. Yeah, it's such an exciting job. My friends, I think, understand it more. I think my friends somewhat understand it more. But again, it is hard for me to explain it to most people as well, what I do, because it's such a big mix of things. It's, it's such an interesting question, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's funny because you're... Family will be friends of other people who can probably explain what they do. But I just find it very fascinating that hardly anyone I speak to, their family can't really like to explain what they do, especially in these very senior roles within big organizations. It's quite interesting. Anyway, that brings us to the official end of our show. Now, thank you so much for sharing no your thoughts, your views and your stories with us. It's been great having you here. I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you. I have. And thank you so much for uh, having me. Really have had a good time. Thank you. Great. And if you like that, then please do like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to check out the rest of our, our wonderful guests we've interviewed over the course of the year. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.